0: Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've
1: never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead, and after, you can unwind using their free high speed Wi Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
0: All righty. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown. Brown with an E, in case you're wondering. And across the table from me is Matthew with one T, Stockton. And the E is silent in my name. The E? In Stockton?
1: No, in Matthew. It's not actually, though. I know. <laughs> what the heck? I confused
0: you intentionally. Was... So you wrote this episode, Matthew. It's dark poutine and I helped. <laughs> you did help. Um, and I was mentioning before that we, we need to put a moratorium on all the southwestern Ontario stories. Good Lord. Is that the only place that you're aware anything happened? I know happened? the
1: dark folkways of my people. You Mike. do.
0: And there, are, I do appreciate them. However, let's let's if we're writing some more. If you the next you've, one I'm writing,
1: yep. is
0: fascinating. The next two, yep. actually are in British Columbia. Fantastic. Yep. All righty, and I'm looking for stuff from Quebec. More Quebec would be good. Yeah, maybe some more from Newfoundland because we haven't had Newfoundland for a while. Have you ever done the Northwest Territories or Nunavut? Well, we have covered a few stories that have taken place, place there. Yeah. Taken place there, but. A lot of those stories are, are really sad sad and depressing. Yeah. So, I mean, like. In
1: super small communities. Yeah.
0: We talk about murder, so it's kind of like, you know, yeah. but they're never going to be happy. No. But, but yeah.
1: Okay. Fair.
0: But we are going to cover more from those places. I'm gathering things as we go. I do have a list of like 400 different wow. things. Wow. Anyway, that two. we plan on covering. I have two. You have two. Yeah. <laughs> we are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. And here's Matthew with a disclaimer again.
1: You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, Family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately.
0: period of two years between January 1969 and January 1971, three women in southwestern Ontario were brutally murdered in three different towns. These women's names were Isabella Belva Russell, Edith Otier, and Jane Woolley. Police solved the case of the third victim, Belva Russell, a matter of weeks after the crime. The perpetrator, Gerald Thomas Archer, was convicted and imprisoned. There were obvious similarities between all three crimes. For several reasons, the initial investigators on the cases missed them. Gerald Thomas Archer got his freedom in 1985 when he was around 52 years old. He was a drifter and passed away in 1995 after a heart attack. Five years after Archer's death, his family made police aware of new information. Gerald Thomas Archer had admitted to his family that he'd killed the other two women. Through DNA, police were able to connect him to the murders of Edith O'Tier and Jane Woolley. Gerald Thomas Archer had been a serial killer and walked free for the last 10 years of his life. This is Dark Poutine episode 230, The Chambermaid Murders. Belva Russell, Jane Woolley and Edith O'Tier. Chatham is in Chatham, Kent County in southwestern Ontario. The town had a population of about 34,000 back in 1971 when this murder takes place. It's a small city equidistant between Detroit, Michigan and London, Ontario. Like those two larger cities, Chatham felt much safer and people led relatively quiet lives there. They seemed to know all their neighbours and didn't even bother to lock their doors. Yeah, that's what my hometown was like too. Bridgewater, we didn't really lock our doors until sort of into the late 70s, early yeah. 80s. Yeah. Residents were probably pleased that they weren't living in London. With its increasing murder rate, we know that London between 1959 and 84 was the serial murder capital of the world, with more serial killers per capita than anywhere else on the planet. They were probably equally as happy they didn't live in Detroit. Motown has always had a high murder rate not to mention the 1967 Detroit riots just four years earlier, which were among the most violent and destructive riots in U.S. history. They left 43 dead, 342 injured, and 1,400 buildings were burned. In the end, it took 7,000 National Guard and U.S. troops to quell it. Wow. I know.
1: My parents lived uh, across the water. Mm -hmm. Have you been to Windsor, Detroit? I drove through there, yes. Like you can almost throw a stone, right? You can pretty much. My parents said they'd like sit out on lawn chairs in the front garden. And watch
0: the war, essentially. And watch the war, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Between these cities sat quiet little Chatham, and in the middle of Chatham sat the Merrill Hotel on the southwest corner of King Street and William Street. Today, the hotel is called the Retro Suites Hotel. It looks swank. From the hotel's website, quote, A boutique, art-driven hotel, Retro Suites, is an awe-inspiring property in the center of Ontario Southwest. A collection of vibrant and eclectic decor, assembled throughout decades of travel, guests discover unexpected treasures throughout. A remarkable mix of iconic design fused with modern luxury, the retro block is comprised of eight architecturally unique buildings spanning over a century. Your experience starts now, all in capitals. Thank you for reading that. Yeah. I'm going to play this to them and
1: try to get a free night. It looks like a cool hotel. It's, it looks like an amazing hotel, actually. It does, actually. Um, A quick note to listeners, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you'll do a good job here, Mike. Sure. The, the, this episode has... A lot. It's called the the Chambermaid Killer, right? So they were chambermaids. There's a lot of hotels in this episode. Okay. But they're all there for a very important reason that you'll understand later. Okay. Which won't be, so I'm sure you'll be as clear as possible.
0: Fascinating. The Merrill Hotel, named for its owner, Frank Merrill, opened its doors in 1900. He ran it as an upscale establishment back then charging a whopping $1.50 per day for a room with an eye-watering $0.25 per meal. Could you imagine, Mike, the luxury? Good Lord. (laughs) This was 50% more than other nearby hotels. So, I mean, you're paying two bits for a meal when you can get a meal for a single bit over at the other place? Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah, this is posh.
0: So it was considered the best hotel in the city. And it seems to have been retrofitted and loved back to the best hotel in the city again as the retro suites. Oh, Matthew's really selling the retro suites. But by 1971, it was a different story. From its initial glory days, the hotel decayed over time. And via a series of different owners, it had truly become a down market hotel. Pretty much a flop house connected to a crappy bar. Time had not been kind to the hotel. Its promise and bright future was gone. In the same way as time hadn't been kind to the people who stayed and worked there. People who in their youth probably had much bigger dreams and ambitions than to be sitting in a downmarket bar on the ground floor of a market hotel in what was then a middling town on a Friday evening. This Friday evening was the 22nd of January, 1971. A hangover from the bygone days of the early 1900s, the bar had two sections, a side for women and a side for men. Men could sit on the women's side if they had a female companion.
1: Isn't that weird?
0: Yeah. And that was the way that a lot of the uh, beer parlors were here in British Columbia. They were exactly that. Women drank in one place, men drank in the other. And ne'er the twain should meet unless there was a, you know, a chaperone. It's crazy. Good Lord. I used to go to gay bars and have the occasional lesbian chaperone. (laughs) Oh, dear. 57-year-old Isabella Russell, who was also known by her friends as Belva, was a chambermaid at the nearby downtown Chatham Hotel, which was not much more upscale than the Merrill. Belva arrived at the Merrill Hotel bar at about midnight and sat on the women's side. She was soon joined by a male friend of hers named Hugh Smith, who lived nearby at 52 Wellington Street. Belva had been sick with the flu earlier in the week, but was feeling much better. Her common-law husband of three years, Cabby Reginald Tomlinson, had received his paycheck from his employer, courtesy cabs, that day, so they went out to do some grocery shopping and run some errands. Feeling a bit flush on payday, and with Belva feeling better, they decided to go out for some drinks at the Rankin Hotel Bar at about 6.30 that evening. They must have decided to carry on and go bar hopping but Reginald was still in his work clothes, so he briefly walked home to change into something more comfortable, while Belva, alone at the bar, agreed to meet him in the bar of the Chatham Hotel where she worked. Reginald returned, and the two stayed there drinking until about 11.30 p.m. The bar must have been rocking that Friday night as Reginald realized that Belva was no longer there. Where'd she go? Mm. With what eventually happened to Belva, we wonder if something had happened at the bar or earlier in the night to make her leave. Who knows? She was nearly 60 years old at that point, and perhaps she just thought she'd leave Reginald left with his friends as she left to find somewhere quieter for a nightcap. Reginald left the Chatham Hotel and returned to the Rankin Hotel, thinking perhaps Belva had gone back there, but was nowhere to be seen. He may have figured she'd decided to go home, so he had another drink at the Rankin and then made his way to the satellite restaurant to get some food into his belly to soak up the booze. Satellite is still in operation today, celebrating sixty years this year. That after drinking food, mm-hmm. I, I used to do a lot of that. We would go to Subway a lot or a pizza joint. Yeah, after drinking, and it was just I can remember being blind drunk, like and literally just, blind drunk, trying to read the menu. Yeah, behind the guy you need at something Subway, to soak it up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was crazy. It was around the time that Reginald arrived back at the Rankin that Belva arrived at the Merrill Hotel and was joined by her friend Hugh. Perhaps Velva, indeed, was on her way home and popped into the Merrill for one last one, as it was only about a four-minute walk from her house, 43 and a half Adelaide Street, just the next street up the block. A man named Gerald Thomas Archer was also in the Merrill bar, sitting across the room in the men's section. Gerald Archer was a 39-year-old alcoholic a regular at the hotel bars in Chatham, especially at the seedier ones. Born in London, Ontario in 1932, he had managed by the age of 18 to have an extensive criminal record which included robbery, beanie, and possession. His wife, Mary Archer, who was 18 years his senior, 57 years old, the same age as Belva, was at home in bed as she probably had a shift the next morning at the Canadiana Nursing Home. The couple had somehow initially met, not physically, but through handwritten correspondence. Perhaps through a lonely hearts ad, a precursor to Tinder's and Grinders of the world. Yeah, so they used <laughs> to have like the lonely hearts section in the newspaper. Yeah,
1: straight white male seeking.
0: It was even more proper than that. Sometimes it was a confirmed bachelor <laughs> looking for same, if you know what I mean. Did you do? You, yeah. <laughs> do you recall that one? Classics. Yeah, those were interesting. After 11 months of writing to each other, they finally met in person and were married a short 11 days later. They'd just moved to Chatham a few months earlier. They had been living in the small village of Merlin about 20 minutes outside of Chatham, but because they didn't have a car, and with Mary's job being in Chatham, it would be easier for her to get to work if they moved. Mary was the primary breadwinner, supporting both Gerald and her daughter from a previous relationship. Gerald was often on welfare and would occasionally take temporary jobs. He spent his welfare checks and much of Mary's money on booze in the local dive bars like the Melville. Belva, across the bar from Gerald Archer, got up from her table to use the ladies' room. Archer, who was watching her, also got up and followed her down the dingy back corridor, but reemerged a short time later. Nobody knows what was said or what happened between the two of them, if anything, in that short amount of time. Upon coming back from the ladies' room, Archer requested to sit on the women's side at the bar. He was given permission and sat near the cigarette machine, a few tables away from where Belva had rejoined her friend Hugh. At just about 1 a.m., at the end of his shift, a newer waiter who was working that night, a gentleman named William Bezzo, sat down with Archer and introduced himself. The conversation topic eventually led to Belva Russell. From the Windsor Star... Wednesday, 16th of June, 1971. Quote The waiter said when Archer told him he was from London, he too lived there for a while and they continued to talk. Shortly after, he said Archer told him he knew Mrs. Russell's daughter and he went out with her at one time. Also, Bezo said Archer told him he had been up in Mrs. Russell's apartment earlier in the day and that he'd tried to, quote, force her to do something, end quote. Bezos said he asked Archer why he wasn't sitting with Mrs. Russell, to which Archer replied she was angry at him. He said Archer told him the two had a little scuffle earlier in the day and then related that, quote, if she doesn't smarten up or something, he would kill her, end quote. Bezo said he paid little attention to the comment during their 10-minute conversation since it was just talk. So often,
1: what on earth? So often in these conversations, uh... When we do these shows, you know, people go, oh, I I just thought he was joking or Mm -hmm. I thought it was just
0: talk. And it's a small town. It's very likely that they did know each other, that they were well aware of each other. And maybe there was something between them that isn't quite clear. I don't know. I guess we'll get there. Stay tuned and find out. Okay. Bezos soon excused himself and left. Belva and her friend Hugh also left. Hugh later testified that he walked Belva home and waited until she climbed her stairs and was safely inside and turned the light on before proceeding home himself. This was between one fifteen and one thirty a.m. You have
1: to wonder, was he being a gentleman to walk her home or, mm-hmm. had, or had she asked him because she felt uncomfortable after she had run into Archer? Her house is literally the next street up. It wasn't
0: very far at all. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's walking her home because he thinks maybe he's going to get somewhere. Maybe. There, there could be all kinds of motives. Yes. Yeah. yeah. At 1.45 in the morning, Belva's downstairs neighbor, Myrtle Barks, heard angry voices coming through the ceiling above her as she laid in bed. She recognized Belva's voice, but didn't recognize the man's voice, but knew it wasn't Reginald's. At one point, she heard Belva shout, get down those stairs. I don't want you in my house. Then there was some mumbling and a massive crash. Stumbled, walking, and mumbling went on for about another 30 minutes. The noise was loud enough that Myrtle and another person living in the duplex, Rick Blair, went outside to see what was going on, but the noise had stopped and both returned to their apartments. Reginald called a cab from the satellite restaurant at 2 a.m. and arrived home just before 2.15 a.m., just as he was mounting the stairs to go up to his apartment, a man unknown to him came running down the opposite direction. Reginald yelled, What the hell is going on? as the man collided with him and kept running. Oh no. Reginald, of course, was terrified to see a stranger running from his home. He hurried up the stairs to check on Belva, but the sight of her made him scream. What the hell? Bell? speak to me. Who did this to you? He ran down the stairs to knock on Myrtle's door, who opened it even before he got there, having heard his cries and probably his footsteps on the stairs. Yeah. Both ran back up the stairs. Myrtle was shocked to see what had caused Reginald to panic. Belvo was lying on her back, arms outstretched on the floor of the dining room. She was naked from the waist down. Her blue sweater and slip were pulled up to her breasts. She was covered in blood. Her skirt and girdle were about two meters away behind the living room door. Reginald held her still warm body, sobbing uncontrollably. He yelled for Myrtle to call the police, call the hospital, call the ambulance.
1: That might seem like a weird thing to yell. Mm. Um, But um, I'm like, why is he yelling all three? But there wasn't 911 at the time. So, what, what, it, what, it, yeah, was... and, and I'm like, oh my God, you'd have to call it three different places. So, yeah. there was no, so, um, you know, this 1971, there was no 911 system. The first 911 in Canada was actually implemented
0: in London as a test market. Mm-hmm. Um, three years after this, 1974. Oh, wow. Yeah. Chatham Constable Wayne Shoemaker and Corporal Donald Thompson arrived at approximately 2.20 a.m., They immediately called in homicide as it was clear that Belva had been murdered as she had massive head injuries. The autopsy was completed 11 hours later. The coroner's opinion was that Belva had died from the shock of the head injuries she had sustained. He also said the marks all over her body would not have resulted from a single fall. The assailant, it was determined, had attempted to rape her. A sample of blood from the scene was taken to determine the blood type. And this was, that was essentially the DNA of the day. Just the blood type. Blood type, yeah. yeah. Isabella Belva Russell was buried in the Maple Leaf Cemetery at the end of January. She was survived by poor Reginald, her estranged first husband, George, two daughters and four sons. A composite sketch was released on the 9th of February and calls came flooding in. Police closed the noose. With the information on the 12th of February, they issued a search warrant for Gerald and Mary Archer's house. So people pretty much picked up right away that it was Gerald. Yeah, it was pretty fast, wasn't it? And their house was on the same street as Belva's, about eight blocks down. During the search, they found a red shirt with bloodstains on it. They put it into evidence bags and submitted it for testing. The police also put together a lineup. Reginald easily picked out Archer as the man who came running down the stairs. On the 18th of February, at 12.30 p.m., three detectives, Wayne Parker, Garland Babcock, and James Boyle, along with Sergeant Tom Bird, arrested Archer for Belva's murder while he was eating his lunch at one of the occasional jobs he took, this time working as a forester, cutting down trees by Highway 401. And we'll take a little break right here. Before we hear from our sponsors, I want to play you a promo from our friends, over at the Evidence Locker podcast. Check it out.
1: The Evidence Locker is a weekly podcast about international true crime. Made by hardcore true crime fans, it's somewhat grungy. Join us as we explore the dark corners of the globe. We've covered cases from Sweden, Brazil, Australia, and the U.S., to mention a few. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: And we are back, Matthew. Wow. So far, this is a crazy story and you have something you want to talk about here. Do you see
1: how he was a forester? Yes. Do you know the, you know, the statistics on foresters? What about them? That they have, um, they're one of the most likely professions to also be serial killers.
0: Really? Yeah. Yeah. And
1: that's why, do you remember Dexter? Oh, God, at the very end, he's a lumberjack.
0: Yes. and in the new one, he had moved on from lumberjacking to yeah. work somewhere else. Yeah. but
1: that thats okay. so if oh. if your spouse, yeah, is a lumberjack. I'm not saying they're a serial killer, but there there is a higher propensity for foresters to be serial killers.
0: Oh, that's that's interesting. yeah. Archer, of course. Pleaded not guilty. During the trial, both Gerald and Mary were questioned under oath. Both said that Gerald commonly had nosebleeds, and that explained the blood, which had been determined to be type A, the same as Belva's. Of course, there was no DNA testing in 1971, so they couldn't determine exactly who that blood had come from. It seems that Archer did know Belva, but he insisted that he wasn't there at the time of her murder. He said that earlier in the week he had stopped by her apartment to bring her whiskey as she had the flu and that Belva's son-in-law, Rich Carson, had driven him there and left after dropping him off. Carson corroborated this. Archer said that he had one drink with Belva, who said she felt dizzy and went to lay down and then he left. He said that on the night in question he went straight home after closing at the Melville and got home at around 1.30 a.m. Mary also said under oath that she knew Gerald was home at 1.30 a.m. because she looked at both the bedroom and kitchen clock when she got up to greet him, giving him an alibi. Archer said he didn't go back to the Merrill after he heard about the murder because he had a criminal record and didn't want to be considered a suspect. The Crown stated that robbery to murder was a big leap. Gerald replied, I've never been charged with safe cracking, but I have been picked up for it. End quote.
1: (laughs) Okay, weird.
0: (laughs) The Crown established that the murder took place at 2 a.m. They presented the fact that the blood on the shirt matched Belva's, that there were fingerprints on the doorframe and a broken piece of glass in the apartment, and that he was easily picked out of the police lineup by Reginald. Gerald Archer was found guilty by a jury on the 17th of June, 1971. From a Windsor Star article, quote, Mr. Justice Onohue, said that he agreed with the verdict and told the accused the life sentence was mandatory. I have no other choice to sentence you to life imprisonment. That's the way it was at the time. The trial ended with Archer saying loudly to his wife as he was led from the courtroom, that's not the end of the ballgame, that's just the first strike. The significance of Gerald's comment was not known at the time. It would become ominously clear later on. Archer appealed and lost. He was paroled in 1985 having only spent 14 years in jail for the brutal murder of Belva Russell. Once he got out, he spent the rest of his life as a drifter, staying in seedy hotels and drinking in their downstairs bars. He died in 1995 from a heart attack. He was 64 years old. His body was left unclaimed, so he was buried in a potter's field.
1: So that is quite a synopsis of a brutal murder. Yes. And everyone thought it was all done and dusted.
0: Right. 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 But clearly it isn't. In 1997, two years after Archer was buried, a task force called Project Angel was set up to investigate 20 cold case murders in southwestern Ontario. Somehow, police, via this task force, found out that Archer had admitted killing a woman named Edith Autier to his wife Mary and her daughter. It's unclear how the police came across this information. Edith was murdered just 5 months before Belva. From the London Free Press, February 16, 2000. Quote, "The evidence gathered indicated the man's family knew about OTA's murder," said OPP detective Mike Coughlin. "When confronted with this, they did admit it," he said. "Oh, well, wow, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, so somebody said the family knows, so they so the family so so his ex-wife Daughter didn't come to them. Somebody said, they know. So the police went, is this true?
0: And they admitted it. And they were probably more than willing to talk about it because he's dead now. He's mm. been in the ground for five years at this couple, point. A couple years, yeah. Yeah. And so they're he, he, they're willing to talk about it. It's probably a relief to them to get it off their chest yeah. now. They might have been afraid of him all
1: those years. Maybe, but I think he was gone. Like after he went to jail, they never got back together. He was mm. a drifter, so.
0: Yeah. Edith Otier, like Belva, was 57 years old. Edith, like Belva, was a chambermaid in a hotel in Chatham. She worked at the William Pitt Hotel, a three-minute walk from the Merrill Hotel where Belva was last seen alive. Remember the little village of Merlin that we mentioned where the archers lived? Well, that's where Edith lived. And she was murdered in her home there just weeks before the archers moved to Chatham. So there's another reason to move. It's like, I've just killed somebody, so Mm -hmm. let's get out of town. Edith was a widow and had no children. She lived alone in Merlin and carpooled to the William Pitt Hotel in Chatham with others who worked there. A neighbor of Edith's and a member of the carpool, a Mrs. Gray, went to pick her up on Saturday the 6th of September 1970. Edith was not waiting outside as she usually did, so Mrs. Gray knocked on her door. When there was no answer, she became concerned and called police. I guess those were the days that it, that you would do that kind of thing.
1: Well, it's a little village of Merlin.
0: Right. Right. Like She's not answering her door. I know she's, you know, yeah. she's got to go to work. and
1: Every, all the
0: neighbors knew each other, Maybe right? she had a heart attack.
1: Yeah. Something might be wrong, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's work time and she shows up to work. Exactly. Right?
0: Upon entering the home, the police found Edith's body. She was lying on her back in her nightgown in a pool of blood with a few bloodied butcher knives from her kitchen near her and blood was splattered up the wainscoting. She had been beaten in the head with an iron and stabbed multiple times. She'd also been sexually assaulted. Police followed up a few leads, but got nowhere fast. The case went cold. Oh, and perhaps we should mention here Edith's husband, who died 13 years earlier, was none other than the brother of Mary Archer, Reginald's wife. (laughs) So they definitely knew each other.
1: Right? So, she was murdered a few weeks, you know, before Belva. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's all these connections, and the case still went cold.
0: Crazy. With this new information of Gerald Archer admitting to killing Edith, his wife's own sister-in-law, which was extracted from Mary by the task force 30 years after the murder, the police finally started connecting some dots and did a deeper investigation into that crime, but also shone the light on another murder— in London, Ontario, in 1969. Jane Woolley, at 60 years old, was close in age to the 57-year-olds Edith and Belva. Jane, like Edith and Belva, was a chambermaid at a downmarket market hotel in nearby London. Wow, this guy certainly had a type, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah. Like most serial killers, they do, like we talked about in our three-part series we did recently. Yeah. Dennis Nielsen definitely had a yeah. type. Yeah,
1: and this type is 50 to 60-year-old... Chambermaids in downmarket hotels in southwestern Ontario. (laughs) Wow.
0: (laughs) An hour's drive away, Jane had been described as a bit of a loner who not many people knew very well. She lived alone in an apartment on York Street in London, just a few blocks away from where she worked at a small seedy hotel called the London House, which sat on the corner of Dundas and Talbot. For those of you who know London, it's where the Bell building now sits. The block was demolished in the late 70s to make way for the ever-so-1980s-looking Bell Building. Jane had collected her pay on a bitterly cold 29th of January 1969. She was known to go bar-hopping in local hotels downtown. But once she left the hotel that day, police were not able to find any witnesses who had seen her again. When she didn't arrive for work on the 30th, not many people thought much of it employees at the dive came and went and often didn't bother to tell anyone that they were resigning. Her position was filled by someone else on the 31st. So I could see that happening even in sort of the dive bars downtown here in Vancouver still.
1: People, oh, guess guess she quit.
0: Yeah. let find somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Right? On the 3rd of February, Jane's landlord knocked on her door. The month's rent was now three days late, which was very unlike Jane. On not getting an answer the landlord opened the door. What she discovered horrified her. Jane's body was at the back of the apartment. She was lying on her back on the floor in a pool of drying blood, legs splayed, and her clothes had been violently ripped from her body. A pillow and three sweaters had been placed over her head. Her purse had been emptied onto the floor with no sign of the money she had picked up from the London House Hotel a few days earlier. The phone was off the receiver. So it's interesting when a killer puts anything over the victim's face, it implicates that they're feeling some kind of remorse for what they've done. And this is his first killing, Mm -hmm. right? So this is 1969. He killed in 70 and 71. Just before
1: the other two. Mm -hmm.
0: So this was kind of probably his first foray into what he knew turned him on. And and he felt a little twinge of like...
1: Yeah, we've been going backwards in time. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: The landlady rushed out to call the police. When investigators arrived, they analyzed the crime scene. Upon taking the pillow and sweaters off her head, they discovered that Jane had been violently bludgeoned to death. See, he couldn't look at it. They noticed that a full ashtray had some cigarettes with her lipstick on them, and some were without lipstick. They took the cigarette butts into evidence. Sadly, Jane's pet budgie was also found dead in its cage. Though it had enough food and water did not have any physical injuries. It was determined by police that the budgie died from stress, having witnessed the murder of its beloved owner. (laughs) Oh, isn't that sad? That is the saddest thing. Jane's autopsy revealed that she had died from brutal head trauma and that she had been dead for several days, probably dying on the 29th, the day she was last seen at work. The theft of the small amount of money she was only taking in $40 a week for her part-time gig was considered to have been an afterthought, and not the reason for the murder. No penetration had occurred, but they assumed the assailant had attempted to rape Jane. Police had no witnesses, no suspects, and the case went as cold as the January day she was murdered on. With the new information being collected by Project Angel, police were finally able to see, almost, see the almost exact victim profiles of Jane, Edith, and Belva, 57-60-year-old to 60 year old white chambermaids, They were also able to see that it was almost exactly the same M.O. every time. Heavy blows to the head to incapacitate them. Rape or attempted rape in their own homes with no indication of forced entry. And the fact that they were all within one hour's drive from each other. Armed with this realization, the police dug up the body of Archer to take tissue samples and DNA evidence. Something that didn't exist when the original investigators were on the case. His DNA matched the DNA on the cigarette butts that they had saved as evidence all those years. Isn't that incredible? It it really is. The evidence in Edith's case had been somehow mishandled, so they could not be definitive with the DNA. But they had enough to conclude that he had murdered her too. In 2000, the police announced that they had solved the cases of the murders of Jane Woolley and Edith Otier. But due to a weird Canadian law, they could could not actually name the murderer. Under the law, the murderer could not officially be named by police until 30 years after the murderer's death. However, enough information was released for the media to determine who they were talking about. That the man was convicted of another southwestern Ontario woman's murder in 1971 and had died of a heart attack in 95 at the age of 64. Everyone knew it was Gerald Archer. We also now know what Archer meant when he yelled, that's just strike one, when he was being led to prison after his trial in 1971. He'd struck three times in all, at least that we know of. Yeah. Gerald Archer, strike three, you are out. You died at the end of a lonely, pathetic life where no one even wanted to claim your remains for proper burial.
1: I feel so bad for these women. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... Um, we talked about, we put their names in the title because so many articles or, or um, stories that I've read just call it the, the chambermaid slayer, right? Yeah. And these women, you know, they're kind of on the margins, Right.
0: A lot of them were kind of. Sure. The they margins. were working in down marketplaces. They, were, they yeah. didn't have the best lives. Yeah. And, probably. I,
1: and I wanted to like make them beyond chambermaids. Right. Yeah. I found it frustrating that I really couldn't find very much information about who they are as individuals mm-hmm. in the research. Um, but, you know.
0: That's usually the way it is. Like yeah. when I research crime, I often find far more about the killer and so little teeny tiny tidbits about the actual person yeah. who was killed yeah. those are the people i'm more interested in
1: yeah absolutely yeah. right because it's their life that was taken away i wanted to, i want to know well, yeah what what is the world missing what did we lose yeah exactly right? because we lost something mm-hmm. uh I f- another thing i found frustrating was the inability for the police to connect the dots between the murders Mm-hmm. But, like, honestly, I'm not going to crap on them because we have to put this in the historical context of, like, sure. the 1960s and stuff.
0: Well, they, the, the word, the the term serial killer wasn't being used. Wasn't being uh,
1: used, yeah. Yeah,
0: it wasn't being used at that time. And it wasn't something that typically, series killers, wasn't yeah. something that police would think about would think. right off the head, even an hour away from each other. These are different jurisdictions, different people are involved different cops.
1: And and that that was one of the main points. It was different jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. I don't think he planned it that way. It just happened that way. Yeah. And there was no communication.
0: The way that communication came out in Canada between police forces was during the Clifford Olson investigation. Yeah. Um, the different jurisdictions got together here in Vancouver and said, hey, we've got a series of murders in Surrey. Do you guys have anything? And... And They were all like, hey, we do, we they do. Re-
1: they realized they would have connected the dots faster. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's how things like VICAP yeah. Has been created, and, yeah. and those kind of things. And
1: you have to remember back back then, South and Ontario was rife with serial killers. Like mm-hmm. you said at the beginning of the show, it was it was like the world's capital of serial killers. This area. Yeah. Um. So you know, even my hometown, with the population of seven thousand back then, mm-hmm. you know, and this is halfway between Chatham and London. We had Christian McGee, the the story that yeah. we covered, the mad slash that's of crazy. Strathroy and I actually named that episode that. Because I know he hates the name. <laughs> okay, that's good. why That's why I called it the Mad Slasher, Mr. Because
0: he is the Mad Slasher, yeah. right? right, Christian? If you're listening, hope you hate us. <laughs> I doubt he uh, even You
1: doubt it. In addition to this, you, know, the, you have the God of Serial Killers. There was no DNA evidence, no mm-hmm. real CSI, no psychological testing, no CCTV, right? No f- phones pinging off cell towers. So it would have been a much much harder job to connect dots back then.
0: Yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, connecting the dots is, is still tough today, but I mean, there's there's a lot more technology that perhaps maybe the police are beginning to rely on too much. Yeah. And and uh that old-fashioned kind of pound the pavement and figure things out. Yeah. yeah. Uh doesn't work well. It wasn't working then either, so. But I
1: think I honestly think they were with what they had, they're trying, probably trying really hard to to solve them. I I think you know, nobody just sort of kicked back to, him, oh, we're not going to, you know, I think they tried hard with what they had at the time.
0: Or when we mentioned at first that his wife was the same age as the women who were murdered. Yeah. I immediately went to, oh, he's killing his wife over and over and over yeah. again. Or, because may, or maybe his mother. In his could head. be. You
1: know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Either way. Like, I mean, he's, he has one victim type on purpose and like, he's got a lady at home who's, you the know. Same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same age.
1: Yeah, and he killed his sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Insanity.
0: Yeah. And how is he not a suspect if he kills his sister-in-law? I know. I know. He's already like um, somebody who they they are well aware of. But I guess it's like he the went crown. To, said. He went
1: to jail for Belva, and mm-hmm. even after that, they didn't go. Oh, wait a minute! Just in Merlin, a fifteen-minute drive. We should
0: probably look at this.
1: She was murdered, and it was
0: his sister The day Yeah, the week before he That's left.
1: where maybe they dropped the ball. Right? Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And that's it for episode 230, The Chambermaid Murders, Jane Woolley, Belva Russell, and Edith Otier. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one eight seven dark We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right. We're back with some voicemails, and we only have one this week, but that's okay. Let's have a listen. It could be an interesting one.
1: Hello, Mike and Matthew. This is Talon calling from Oyen, Alberta. Uh, I started listening to you guys in, uh, about the first week of March, and I've listened to every single episode, and I just finished listening to the last episode today. And, uh, as much as I'd like to leave you guys a donation, right now I can't even afford a hat to take a shit in. (laughs) Uh, and I, I, uh, I'd like to recommend you guys do a few episodes of some other things in Canada, like, uh uh true crime things such as corporate crime or scams that type of nature anyways that's it for now thank you bye-bye
0: oh, interesting yeah thanks talent thanks, that's talent. great that's cool. and hopefully you find some money to buy yourself a hat to oh my god in at Mike, some point
1: have you been paying attention to like the, the grocery bill like it just goes it's up insane week right now like i, do, I completely get you talent i'm like Every week, it's like, oh my God, how much are, like just to feed myself.
0: I bought a, I bought a loaf of bread the other day for five dollars. I bought a friggin' pack of hot dogs for seven bucks. That's insanity. But seven dollars for so, hot so dogs. So bread.
1: So we we're the largest um, wheat um, producer in the world, and our N- and our no, bread.
0: We're not anymore. It's it's uh,
1: second largest. Ukraine. Second largest, Well, maybe we'll be the largest again soon with the war. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we make a lot of wheat and yeah. our bread is five bucks mm-hmm. and then hot dogs. Like how much does like ground up, like pig assholes cost?
0: It's lips, lips and assholes. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah.
1: So yeah, get it Talon, but thank you for calling in. Yeah. And what do you think of that, Mike? Like corporate or no, scams?
0: No, I, I have been sort of looking at some other things. Those are a little more complex to unravel. There's a few really interesting and weird crimes. One in particular that I've kind of been bashing away at, and I'm not going to give it away, but it's a stranger crime that maybe you've, you've probably heard of. But, okay. but it's, again, it, these things tend to be more complex and harder to unravel.
1: And if the corporations are still around, you don't want to get sued. No, I don't give, I don't give a <laughs> shit. You don't
0: give a shit? <laughs> no. But anyway.
1: Thanks Thanks for your call,
0: Talon. Thank you, Talon. And that's it for our callers this week and let's move on and uh see about Patreon. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at 1877-327-5786 or 1877 DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. <sighs> Matthew just let out a big sigh. Oh. Yeah, you did. Um, And it's time for Patreon and Donut Money Donors. And we've got three this week. Yay. Yeah, it looks like. uh, First up, we have from Stony Plain, Alberta. I love that name, Stony Plain. Denise Walker. Denise Walker from Stony Plain. And what does Denise Walker do in Stony Plain, Matthew?
1: Denise Walker Mm -hmm. in Stony Plain makes stone baked
0: breads. Oh my gosh. You, know, you, you, know you just stuff? made me really hungry. You know hungry. this stuff? Like yeah. Like proper, like
1: really nice breads. I bet you Denise makes a wicked loaf of bread. Or, I like or, stone or,
0: fired or pizza. pizza, pizza yeah. yeah, that's my favorite thing. Stone fired margarita pizza. <gasps> oh my God. Like it's not margarita like booze. It's like cheese and uh, tomato sauce and lots of mar- mozzarella with spinach.
1: Do you remember when you, ha- you used to have to ask for anchovies not to be put on your pizza? When It used to be like one of the things that was put on a pizza unless you asked for it not
0: to. I be. don't think I've ever actually seen anchovies on a pizza. I's, I've heard a lot of jokes about In anchovies.
1: In the 1970s, when we ordered pizza, we had to ask for no anchovies. Really? Yeah. It might have been just my area. It might maybe have been a cultural thing. But yeah, we had to You'd specifically say no little Filleted fish on your pizza.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would want that. Like, that would be kind of grim.
1: Yeah, that's what we did.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Anchovies. Nothing wrong with fish. Well, thank you, Denise Walker. Thanks, Denise. Uh, Much appreciated. Next up, we have Emma Wright. And I don't know where Emma's from. Emma Wright. Hmm. Where could Emma be from, Matthew? Oh, he's got the... I see the thinking happening. Smoke's coming from his ears. She's from Salmon Arm. Salmon Arm as opposed to Trout Leg. Exactly. <laughs> salmon Arm, up in British Columbia, there are... Uh, I like the name of that town. Mm-hmm. Carol, Carol and I went to Salmon Arm Did one I time. I accidentally called it Salmon Elbow for like the first two years. Salmon yeah. Elbow. <laughs> yeah, Carol and I went there one time and spent the weekend. It was, okay. nice. It was nice up there.
1: Did you do like a camping thing? I'm, no. I've driven past and you see like little camping areas.
0: Oh, you mean stay at a hotel? That's camping for yeah.
1: me. Well, yeah. <laughs> roughing it for me is not having room service.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Salmon Arm. What does Emma do up there in Salmon Arm? What does she
1: do in Salmon Arm? Mm-hmm.
0: Does she arm the salmon? Yes. Like little little bows and arrows and crossbows and rocks. Yeah. Yeah, so Oh good, they have fights. So, so it's she, like
1: she's a salmon arms dealer. Oh. <laughs> We've had an arms dealer before, but we haven't had a salmon
0: arms dealer. Right. No, she deals in salmon arms. Like they are actual arms for salmon. <laughs> it's like prosthetics. <laughs> the salmon They'll feel They'll swim much better if they have arms. They can do the doggy paddle. They feel left out, so they need arms. <laughs> we our, want arms. We want salmon Get arms. Said.
1: For 5.99 a month, you too can give a salmon arms. <laughs>
0: Oh boy! Uh, next up, um, it looks like there's two names on this. Okay, so um, it's under the name Jeff Landry, but uh, the other name is Jean Francois Landry, and they are in Quebec City, in Quebec.
1: Or maybe, maybe that's the English and the French version of his name. It could be.
0: Okay. It could very well be. Anyway, where do they live in Quebec? Quebec City.
1: Oh, you know, I've never been to Quebec City. I
0: have once, very briefly, and, and went to Old Quebec. It's an it old
1: forts. It's an old fort, isn't it's it? It's beautiful. I hear it's gorgeous.
0: It looks like Paris. I'm not kidding. It really, really looks like France. It is beautiful. Yeah. I, if I can ever get to Quebec again, I want to spend a week in Quebec City and just explore. It in, looks so gorgeous. Do you there.
1: my Do you know what my retirement uh, fantasy is? No. To own a little old building, mm-hmm. e- either in Quebec City or Montreal.
0: Montreal is nice.
1: Um, and I live above a shop, and it just sells honey. Mm-hmm. And I sit in front of the shop, having coffee, wearing a fedora, and just talk to people, and don't make any money on the honey shop. That's my. You just make it enough to get by. That's my retirement plan, and I figure that way I'll finally learn French. Right. Bonjour, Monsieur. So that's my retirement. Comment ça va? Plan. So Jeff. Yeah. Um, if you know a good place where I should open a honey shop in Quebec, let me know. Yeah, that thank would be you fantastic. so much for your patronage.
0: Yes, and thank you uh, very much to all our patrons. We don't have any Donut Money donors this week, but that's cool. That's cool. And we will move on to the end of the show. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. As per usual, until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. And don't get lost in the marble caverns. Don't get lost in the marble caverns. I don't know what Matthew just said, but whatever. Neither do I. Seemed appropriate. Okay. Bye. Bye.